0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. ChristianHumanist.org
1: All the girls are complicated 148 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have two regular panelists, Alexis Neal and Christina Lake. Hey, Alexis and Christina.
0: Hello. Hello.
1: Let's introduce ourselves. For any listeners that are new to the program, Alexis, start us off.
0: Sure. My name is Alexis Neal. Um, I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, uh, the political science podcast within the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And um, by training, I'm an attorney. But uh, these days, I've been spending most of my time with our two little boys and just finished up our first year of full-blown homeschooling, uh, which I absolutely loved. Um, and now I'm enjoying the break from that and summer um summer schedules, uh, but not summer heat. Uh, and then in addition to that, I'm also an elected official in our small rural community.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Alexis. And I know that your expertise is going to come in handy for this episode, so I'm really glad you're here with us tonight. Happy to do it. Christina, tell us about you.
0: Yes, i um,
2: Christina Bieber Lake, and I teach English at Wheaton College, where I've been for a very long time focusing on American literature, work on Flannery O'Connor and Cormac McCarthy and writers like that. And I live here in Illinois with my husband, who is an Anglican priest, and our son, Donovan.
1: Thanks, Christina. Uh, And I am, as I said, Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist podcast, Uh, My day job is working in market research for a very large firm focusing on the agricultural space. Uh, By training I am an academic, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies, uh, and as someone with uh, two advanced gender studies degrees, this topic is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, So today's episode is one I've wanted to do for a really long time. We're continuing our all-TV summer here at the CFP, and we'll we'll be covering the 2020 Hulu prestige series Mrs. America, which is about conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly and her fight to prevent the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment. It also covers a number of feminist heavy hitters on the pro-ERA side of things, including Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, and Shirley Chisholm. Uh, I was interested in covering this show both because it humanizes some really important figures in the history of the feminist movement and because it explores uh, some of the late 20th century evolution of the role of evangelical Christi- Christianity in American politics. But before we jump into the show itself, uh, some background I'm going to give just a really tiny bit on Schlafly herself, uh, and then Alexis is going to use her legal expertise to walk us through the Equal Rights Amendment and an explanation of how amending the Constitution works. Phyllis Schlafly was a lawyer and a conservative activist and probably the most famous vocal opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment. She was a devout Catholic, a married mother of six, and she founded the organization Eagle Forum in 1972, uh, which in its own words describes itself as a group that, quote, enables conservative and pro-family men and women to participate in the process of self-government and public policymaking, so that America will continue to be a land of individual liberty with respect for the nuclear family, public and private virtue and private enterprise. Uh, it currently has over 80,000 members. Schlafly herself was an incredibly prolific author. She wrote 26 books on topics as diverse as uh the communist threat to America, nuclear policy, child rearing, and the social role of public schools. She also had a weekly syndicated newspaper column. So there's a lot more to say about her biographically, but I want to make sure we have time to cover everything we need to cover. So uh, with that tiny bit of general background, uh, Alexis, can you give us some more context? Tell us how the Constitution is amended uh, and what the ERA actually says.
0: So according to the Constitution itself, Article 5 outlines the process by which the Constitution may be amended. There are two methods for proposing amendments and then two methods for ratifying amendments. So um, both of the proposal methods require a supermajority of two-thirds Uh, of the body that has to approve that. And then um, a supermajority of three quarters is what's going to be required for ratification. So um, one way to propose an amendment is through uh, a a, uh, bill passing both houses of Congress by a two thirds majority. Um, So it can come out of Congress with a two thirds majority and be proposed that way. Um, And then once it's been proposed by Congress, uh, it would need to be ratified by either three quarters of state legislatures or conventions in three-quarters of states. Um, and then the, the other method for proposing um, an amendment is two-thirds of state legislatures can request an amendment or request a convention to propose um, to propose amendments, and then whatever amendments are kicked out as proposed by that convention would still then need to be ratified by three-quarters of states, uh, either three-quarters of the legislatures or by um three quarters of uh, conventions in three quarters of the states. So uh, in either case, it's a two thirds majority to propose three quarters to pass uh, and and ratify. uh, And the ratification always takes place at the state level. Um, And in either case, Congress is going to be the body that chooses which method of ratification is going to happen. So Congress, when they pass the bill or when they uh, convene the convention, they'll decide we want this to be ratified by conventions at the state level or by the state legislatures. Um, all but one have been done by legislatures. There's only one that they've asked for conventions. What that means for our current uh, deliberative body, uh, uh, Congress, is if you wanted Congress to be the body proposing the amendment, you would need 292 reps, uh, representatives, and 67 senators uh, to propose, or 34 states to request a convention. Um, and then for ratification, you would need uh, now, as you did, as they did. Um, Uh, for the Equal Rights Amendment, 38 states to meet that three quarters requirement. And we're going to hear about that a lot um, through the discussion of the ERA uh, and Mrs. America. So 38 states is what they needed. They had more than the two thirds that they needed in Congress when it was proposed. um, And then the issue was, could they get 38 states to ratify? Okay, So that's the ratification process, according to the Constitution. As far as the ERA itself, uh, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, it's originally proposed back in 1923, but it doesn't really um, ever get any traction in Congress um, to get passed as a proposed amendment until 1972, when it is passed by the required supermajority of Congress, Um, and they they made more than they need to, uh, 354 representatives and 84 senators, so well above the the two-thirds requirement. When Congress proposed this amendment, they imposed a seven-year deadline for the states to ratify, which is also going to be very important. Uh, The text of that amendment, as approved by Congress or proposed by Congress in 1972, was as follows. Section 1, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2, the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. Section three: This amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. So that's the text of the amendment um, that is proposed in 1972. Within the first, within that seven-year period allowed by Congress, 35 states ratified the amendment. Uh, 22 ratified in the first year, and then uh, a diminishing number sort of over the, the following years. Um, then in 1978, one year shy of the um, the deadline. Congress realizes we're we're not at 38 yet. So that Congress decides to extend the deadline by three years to 1982. This is done by a simple majority vote. um, And there are multiple opinions about how effective this extension was. At the time, a U.S. District Court did rule against the extension. And the matter was uh, was going to be heard at the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. But um, while it was still pending, uh, the deadline passed without having reached the required 38 states, so the case was dismissed as moot. Um, so no additional estates ratified during the three-year extension, and at this point in 1982, the extension has lapsed. Uh, the ERA is assumed to be dead, uh, and so proponents kept trying to restart the process by um, introducing new bills in Congress, but uh, to no avail. Then what happens is in 1992, a different amendment, uh, what we now know as the 27th Amendment, is actually deemed ratified more than 200 years after its initial proposal. So this is one of the amendments that's proposed way back at the very beginning with our Constitution um, and it only gets a handful of ratifications then. It's rediscovered um, in like the, late, the 80s and a bunch of states ratify it and um, it is deemed ratified. Uh, this revives uh, proponents of the ERA's hopes, if. Uh, if an uh, amendment can still be live uh, after 200 years um, from an initial uh, proposal, perhaps the ERA is not as dead as it seemed. So they began more actively trying to uh, get additional states to ratify. Since then, three additional states claim to have ratified the ERA. Um, again, I say claim to because it depends on whether or not they can still ratify. Nevada ratified in 2017, Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020. In addition, five of the original 35 states have voted to rescind or withdraw their ratification, but it's not clear that there's any way to do that that's legally recognizable. It's not clear that you can undo ratification once it has happened. So currently, proponents of the ERA are arguing either that Congress has the authority to extend the deadline yet again or just remove the original deadline such that our recent ratifications are now effective, Or they alternatively argue that deadlines have to be in the text of the amendment to be effective. So when I read the text of the amendment a moment ago, there wasn't anything about a deadline. That was in the preamble language that was part of the bill. Um, And so the argument is, well, it's not in the the amendment itself. And so therefore, uh, it's not binding. Uh, Although it's worth noting that of the states that have ratified it, 25 of those states included the preamble language with the deadline in the bill ratifying the amendment. And five others specifically mentioned the deadline. Um, And since uh, since 1917, all amendments except the 19th have had deadlines for ratification. um, And uh, and they had been in the text until 1960. And then they were put in the preamble. So putting it in the preamble was pretty standard practice at the time. Um, And proponents also argue that any attempt to rescind ratification is not effective. So the five states that have tried to take back their ratification, um, that that didn't work. In the past, the Supreme Court has noted that ratifications should be somewhat contemporaneous, but they have declined to get involved in deciding what that means. Uh, And they look to Congress as the body that that has the authority to determine what is a reasonable time for ratification. So in March of this year, a federal district court in Washington, D.C., ruled against the ERA, um, on deadline grounds, so they did not decide about whether you can rescind a ratification, and they did not decide about whether uh, there could be extensions of the deadline to um, make those, rat- those newer ratifications valid. All they said was the deadline set by Congress for 82 or for 79 um, was valid and um, it has has passed. Appeals are underway for that case, so we don't know what's going to happen with that. Uh, it is worth noting that the judge who wrote that opinion. At the district court level was an Obama appointee. So this is not necessarily someone with a bunch of conservative credentials. Future litigation on the issue is unclear. It's going to involve a lot of political questions. This is The Supreme Court may just refuse to answer. And the impact of the Equal Rights Amendment is also unclear because many of the rights that are uh, originally were being sought are already now protected in um, law. So an amendment might preserve them in a more permanent way, but would not necessarily grant new rights uh, in those contexts. And then there's also the potential for new unintended rights after the Supreme Court's Bostock decision defined discrimination because of sex to include gender identity and sexual orientation. So sorry, I know that was a lot, but I wanted to I was doing the research and it was really interesting to me to hear about all of the, the history and context there. Um, so we sort of know what's going on with the ERA.
1: Thank you so much. That context is really helpful. And I I like that you mentioned um, two things that that I think are are most interesting about uh, the ERA as a kind of evolving historical and political document, which is it does. Uh, stem from first wave feminism initially, uh, what becomes the ERA is written by Alice Paul, um, who we have mentioned on lots and lots of episodes of this show, and uh, your your last point, I think, is really, really relevant to our current moment, the idea that the use of the word sex has evolved legally and politically over time, and and what does that mean for the future of this law, I think, is a a very important question as well. So now that we've gotten lots of, uh, difficult context out of the way, let's dive into the show. Um, we're not going to talk about the first episode in a lot of depth, but I did want to, um, briefly talk about it in this series. Most of the episodes are named for one woman, uh, that the series explores and, uh, We get a a sort of personal angle on most of the women involved in the fight for and against the ERA and Phyllis, uh, because she's the central figure of the show in a lot of ways, is the first uh, and the first episode takes her name. So while we're not going to do a deep dive into this episode, I did want to stop there briefly and ask, how is she framed as a person um, in this initial episode and how are we set up as viewers? to see her both as a woman and as a political figure? Uh, Christina, can you answer that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I, I love this question because I, I actually thought that the first episode was super intriguing and actually quite complicated and complex in ways that I wasn't expecting. This show is just a lot better than I was expecting. It has a lot of flaws, but um, to first of all, to start with the opening scene in the swimsuits, was just i was just floored i just I was like okay we're not in texas anymore but you know what i mean it's like this kind of um kansas anymore i mean this kind of um display of the the female body and then there's this amazing intelligent woman phyllis schlafly highly educated kind of put into that situation it just blew my mind and so the episode kind of frames her as somebody who's super smart squelched by her husband uh, about running for Congress uh, or continuing to run for Congress. She had one failed run and then she wanted to run again. And then how that kind of turns her in a way toward fear issues that, you know, sort of like, oh, you know, the ERA is going to draft your daughters. It's going to cause all of these problems. And and so it's like Hollywood blaming the fact of her husband, apparently, and I don't think this is necessarily true, but we can talk about it squelching or sort of largely not encouraging her run. Do you guys know anything about what, how true that is or isn't?
1: As far as I know, it is fairly. Completely untrue. Um, she she likes yeah. to she liked to joke about And this is a joke that comes up. Um, lots in in the show and that I have seen in in recordings of her speeches too Um, she often began events by saying um, I'd like to thank my husband for allowing me to speak here today Um, which was just a a very tongue in cheek um, acknowledgement of of the argument against her Um, there's a, a public liberal argument that I've always been really dissatisfied with, um, that, that has always felt like a, a really pat easy way out to me that paints Schlafly as, um, essentially just a hypocrite, a woman who made a career of telling women that they shouldn't have careers and that they should, um, stay in the home and, and take care of their children. And that is such a reduction of her total reduction, uh, right. Um, of, of her arguments, and, and I, I will say, you know, I, I don't agree with all of her arguments. But to uh, to discredit someone who, as you say, Christina, was very clearly um, intelligent and had mm-hmm. a, a, a brain for political matters and world affairs and knew so much about nuclear policy and was an advisor on those matters um, to reduce her to a, a kind of cardboard cutout. Um, conservative misogynist is is unfair and uh, and terrible. And one of the ways that the show does that is by um, painting Fred Schlafly as um, as a misogynist. And I'll I'll mention just the, the thing that bothers me the most about um, the first episode. And, and then I'll let Alexis talk. But speaking about Fred um, I do think this is a bit of stunt casting. Uh, we we get jo- uh, John Slattery, best known as Roger Sterling from Mad Men, uh, as Fred in this show, um, in a, a really terrible uh, set of false teeth that are supposed to make him look more like Fred. I'm not sure they do that. Uh, I think that <laughs> <laughs> I think that his casting is is really trading on. Uh, Roger Sterling and, and the fact that we associate him with a kind of uh, sexist, misogynist, hypocritical man
2: of that time period. Uh, okay. And that's so funny. Cause I did, I remembered I recognized his face, but I didn't put it together with, with that character. Cause I hadn't seen Mad Men in so long, but that makes perfect sense. why I didn't yeah. like him even to just begin with just looking yeah. at him. Right.
1: Yeah. They're okay. doing that on purpose. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, in it, I think I, I think it's it's either four or five. The um, the episode that's the debate with um, Mark and Brenda Faustino, I don't remember their hyphenated name, um, the Bob Carroll, Ted, Ted and Alice uh, send up episode that debates Mark and Brenda, uh, Fred says to Phyllis, if you don't like the debate, change the shape of the table, which I will eat my hat if that is not a direct reference to uh, Don Draper's famous first season line to Peggy Olsen. Uh, if if you don't like the narrative, change the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely on purpose, disingenuous um, painting Fred Schlafly in – a negative light that he it seems by all accounts did not deserve. Uh, and the most egregious instance of this comes in the first episode where, uh, Fred maritally rapes Phyllis after she has a bad. Yeah. Day. Yeah. And, and I, this like, as, as a person, as, a practicing Catholic who believes deeply in the sacrament of marriage as a sacrament. Um, I just, this is so, this is beyond the pale. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their, their daughter, Anne says, this did not happen. This is completely unfair. And to me, what this reads as, because we, we do have, um, we do have proof that Phyllis in, uh, in public lectures, implied that she thought that marital rape was a misnomer and that women uh, entering into consensual marriage were thereby signing off on sex, a view that I will say I do not agree with. But because we have her saying that to me, the fact that they insert this awful marital rape, he holds her down. She makes terrible face. It's really it's disturbing and, and awful. Um, the fact that the creators of the show inserted this trauma and, uh, and and sexual violence that they seem to have no cause to think is truthful on a character that they do not agree with, to me, seems like some kind of twisted revenge rape scenario that is just totally it's appalling. It's appalling, it's appalling it and is. they should be ashamed.
2: They should be ashamed, and it's really I'm I'm glad that you raised that scene because it is one of the most disturbing ones in my mind. It's like the sort of Hollywood elites, if you want to call them that, liberal, you know, whatever. Really can't imagine a Catholic woman choosing right the kind of Catholic position. They just it's just they just completely cannot imagine a woman who would do that.
1: Right, and I'll I'll talk more about um, how. That affects my view of the show um, when we yeah. dive into episode six, but I'll, I'll let um, Alexis talk about episode one now. Sorry for going on too long.
0: Uh, no, you're fine. I I don't have that much to say about it, other than uh, it's it kicks off a pattern of using so that the the there's a placard at the beginning of each episode that says hey the, there's historical basis for some of this stuff, but we made up a bunch of stuff too, and it seemed to me that the pattern was. We're going to we're going to in private invent whatever inv- events and conversations uh, we decide to to really make people look um, good or bad. And we're going to really hang our hat of whether they're good or bad on the stuff that we make up rather than using the verified stuff to really shape our image of who people are. So oh, good, um, I'm so glad that you said that, Alexis, because I have something to say about that when you're done. Um, well, yeah, so and it's, I don't think it's in the first episode, but but later on in, in one of the episodes, um, Phyllis makes a reference to uh, her husband having gone to Harvard Law and how she could have gone to Harvard Law. Um, he wasn't the only one who was accepted to Harvard Law. She was, too. And he basically calls her out and is like, yeah, except that, um, you know, you went to you got your master's five years before the first woman is admitted to Harvard or something like that. And the way that the scene is presented is she just lied about this to her husband in private. Because she is a person who lies. It really was the only um, way that I could read it. And here we had a made up conversation with no basis in fact. I don't know if it happened or not, but to to use that as the ground to build your narrative of this is a person who does not respect the truth, maybe very uncomfortable. If you want to say here's here's uh, Villa Schlafly in public making an untrue statement and we have proof that it was an untrue statement and she knew it and she made it anyway um that's a that's a fine basis for for building that narrative of her as someone who does not care about truth but to put it in in the right, context yeah. of that private conversation uh, in the same way that you have you know, what their what their marital relationship is um, and and the same thing happens with other characters too but but the idea seems to be we are meant to see them in a particular way because of the pieces of, of the narrative that, that are least verifiable um, and that made me a little bit uncomfortable. And I will say, having being one of the only maybe three people in the world who's not seen Madman, Mad Men yet, John Slattery is also the P guy from Sex in the City from way, way back when. Oh, yeah. Um, and so not exactly the same narrative, but a sleazy politician guy who doesn't necessarily respect women and is willing to sacrifice them for his own ends. So not, not also, you know, further uh, further characters that he's played um, that that kind of, Um, may or may not have been been pulled from in this character. Dude should be
2: worried about his typecasting, shouldn't
0: he? (laughs) Maybe maybe (laughs) a little bit. I don't know.
2: (laughs) But what I was going to say is that I'm so glad that you brought up the issue of sort of the way that we're expected to see these characters. It has to be black and white, right? To me, the first episode did such a good job of reminding me of the problem that we have right now, sort of Trump America, just for a short way of putting it, Um, the foundations were being laid during this time. And let me explain myself just a little bit. It's like the really aggressive uh, feminist movement, the aggressive ends of it, the radical ends of it, um, not allowing for there to be dignity in housewives and homemakers and Catholic women who want to have children, right? Sort of forcing people like Phyllis Schlafly to take a stand that she might not have otherwise taken. And I actually thought that the first episode was a little bit uh, interesting in the way that it was depicting that, you know, like you can see her kind of deciding to go down that path. Does that make any sense? Um, It was sophisticated and subtle. I thought uh, that, that it was kind of like, well, you're, you're, you're putting me in this situation to, to say, you know, it really does. It is important to be a mother and it is important to be a homemaker. And it's not just career women who are important. All of this is important. And in the way she was forced into that position. You guys agree or disagree with
1: that? I I do agree with that, and I think that something that the show does that is smart is that the pro ERA crowd doesn't really disagree with that. They correct. I, I think it's a a composite character um, in in one of the um, Ms. magazine meetings in Gloria Steinem's office uh, when they're they're trying to. Uh, trying to talk about their progress, and they get a copy of Phyllis's newsletter, and it's it's the first of, I don't know, a hundred times that uh, Betty Friedan mispronounces schlafly on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she doesn't say it right once, uh, which I think is a, a wonderfully petty human detail. Yes. Um, what, one of my favorite things about this whole show is is what a jerk uh, Betty Friedan is because I think it it sort of takes her down from the pedestal that we often.
2: Uh, That's so great. Put but her do you on. think she was that awful, mean she's kind of like the the you know, stereotypical feminist hag kind of thing in this film? Do you think she was really like that? I don't know
1: that she was as petty as the show makes her out to be. What I did like, what I do think is accurate and not talked about is she was really kind of generationally terrible. Like, she was awful to younger women in the Mm -hmm. movements. She talks... Bad about third waivers in her book, the second stage. Um, she doesn't think that younger feminists who do things differently are doing them right at all. Like yeah. we have, we have written proof of this. She kind of foments those divides in the movement, um, not just with younger women, but with, um, with her famous lavender menace uh, comment, right with yeah. the, uh, lesbian feminists, which gets a, I think, a shout out too.
0: Does, <laughs> but anyway, yes.
1: um, I, I do agree. I think that While there's a lot of inaccuracy that I did not enjoy, um, I liked the fact that the warts and all portrayal did seem to extend to both sides of the aisle. I think that's uh, that's a a good thing here. Agreed. Um, All right. Uh, Do we have anything else to say about episode one before Christina takes us into episode three? I'm
0: good. want me to okay yeah well
2: i'll just go ahead and talk about uh the episode three which is entitled Shirley. and uh the, the reason why i chose this one to kind of focus in on was because i just didn't know a lot about shirley chisholm uh to begin with and i was just delighted to see uh to see kind of her portrayed learn a little bit more about the 1972 uh democratic convention which is historically really significant Right. with the things that happened during that convention. So the episode does a terrific job, I think, of showing how politically difficult it would be for an African-American woman, for a woman of any sort, but particularly for an African-American woman to actually make a run for the presidency and portrays that um, with real sophistication. I mean, the fact that they would say to her things like, you know, you've got to go for McGovern now. This is just politically not realistic. And then her response would be something like, you know, they say that anybody, well, this is the quote, right? They say that anybody can run for president, but that's really never been true. You you know, somebody has to be first. Somebody has to be the first one to do it. And I had chills uh, coming down my spine just thinking about the legacy between Shirley Chisholm and, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, right? Like, like Shirley Chis Chisholm, Chisholm, in a way, made it possible for Kamala Harris, even though so many years and so much suffering and stuff has uh, you know been in in the in between times. So uh, what did you guys think about
0: that episode? Um, I, I thought the the political the political calculations were really interesting. I think we see a lot of throughout the series of people weighing their options and making the best call that they think is available to them. And I don't know that we see anybody doing that and it works out, Um, but I think there's not, I don't know that there's another better way to do it. So in, in, in in the Shirley episode, we see Gloria Steinem um, and, and others, um, Bella Abzug, uh, um, trying to decide how long to continue to support Shirley Chisholm and at what point to switch over to uh, support McGovern. Exactly. As the the more likely um, candidate. And they, they ultimately, um, you know, get concessions from McGovern's people uh, and, and reach out uh, an agreement. And then um uh, McGovern reneges on that. Um, uh, <laughs> so they were they were going to get a floor vote on the issue of abortion um, and a bunch of male. Um, uh, I'm just blanked on what the word is for it, delegates or whatever. We're, were going to vote. And we had given up their seats to women so that women would be the ones voting on this issue. And and when it actually looks like they might win, uh, all the men come and take their seats back. Um And uh, at at McGovern's people's orders. Um, So there is a sense of betrayal of having having backed the wrong person there. Uh, We see it again, not not necessarily in the same sense of betrayal um, later on in the episode that we're going to talk about in a minute, um, where um, uh, Jill Ruckelshaus's husband is a potential um, vice president nominee, and they have to choose whether she should go to the convention or she should stay home to increase his chances of becoming the the uh, vice president uh, nominee and it doesn't work out so they they make that sacrifice and it, it doesn't pan out um and we'll see mm-hmm. we see it at the very end um where phyllis schlafly does the same thing picking uh, which candidate she is going to support for president in the 1980 election um and and chooses reagan um thinking that she'll get um maybe mm-hmm. some kind of cabinet appointment out of it and then um, at the end of the day, her Reagan calls her to acknowledge that that she was instrumental in winning the election for him. But he has to increase his appeal with women and therefore he will not be repaying paying that favor with anything but a thank you. Um, and so she will not be yeah. um, receiving that appointment. So we see that that pattern emerging where people are having to make those political calculuses. And I don't mm-hmm. know if the point then overall is any compromise is um is just never going to work out, and is always a bad idea because I don't think that it's true that it would have gone any differently necessarily. I don't know that there, things would have gone differently if Joe Ruckel's house had been at the uh, at the convention. I don't know that things would have gone differently. I, you know, it's not like Phyllis Lafley would have gotten an appointment um, if she had backed Phil Crane. I don't know that um, you know that if Gloria Steinem had supported Chisholm, that they would have gotten a vote for, right. you know, on the floor. I mean, so I don't know that it would have been different, right. but uh, I did appreciate that but they were the pointed out. Yeah, they have to make those tough calls. Politics. Yeah. And sometimes you just you choose wrong and there wasn't a way to know it. And sometimes you choose wrong and there was a way to know it was the wrong choice. But sometimes it's just You couldn't know that and you had to pick one and it was the wrong choice.
2: Yeah. Right. And that's so that's such a wise comment, Alexis, because politics is like that. Right. It's always just about appearances and um, deals and things on on the side and under the table and stuff. And of course, this is what feminists have always known. Right. And that whole scene where they're going up to McGovern's um, suite. Right. To try to wheel and deal with them. Um, and then they come down and run into Betty Friedan in the elevator. <laughs> She's like, were you in McGovern's suite? You know, but it's like this whole difficulty of the political landscape of of taking and giving and how much progress can you actually make at what time? Um, and, you know, McGovern, they really wanted McGovern to win so they could get rid of Nixon. And in the end, that didn't even happen. Right. So it's just so interesting to me and so many parallels with our contemporary situation with Biden and, um, you know, with Trump and the election of, of 2020. It was just so fascinating to me, the number of parallels uh, in, and in, in that.
1: I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that scene in the elevator, um, because I, I think it's a, a fantastic piece of acting from Rose Byrne. Uh, who she's plays, great. She's so Who good. plays Steinem. Yeah, she's really, really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's great in everything. Yes, yeah, she really a, is. a really solid actor. But I, what I really like about, and I, I alluded to this before, but the whole series sort of, um, in a way, revolves around this inter-movement division between Fredan and Steinem. And Fredan is... Um, on one hand, the old guard, you know, the, the feminine mystique mobilizes uh, the general feminist consciousness of the United States in so many ways. Uh, it's a very important document in the history of the movement. We've done multiple episodes on it. Um, so she's she's very important. But there's this sense that she is kind of a dinosaur. And. Uh, once the seventies roll around and that because Steinem is younger and prettier and more conventionally appealing and uh, willing to talk about um, sexual issues in a way that older women, not
2: motherly. Right.
1: Um, She's, she's sort of more open about those things that she's, more appealing to be the face of the movement. And that is one reason why um, she in the show goes to McGovern's um, suite is to flirt. is probably too strong a word, but it, it's clear in those interactions yeah. with the delegates um, that she's trading on her sexuality in a way that she knows she has to do, but isn't entirely crazy about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so it's very subtly done. I thought the whole episode was really, was quite sophisticated. And then also just to mention my favorite scene from the episode is, you know, Shirley Shirley Chisholm's in that hotel there and she thinks she's being bugged by, you know, Nixon or, you know, which would be reasonable because they're just finding out right about Watergate at this time. So Yeah, Nixon be bugging folks. That's the thing that happened a lot. he be surveying people. You know, uh, you know, yeah, he's put this uh, secret service on you, but is it there to survey you or to, you know, protect you? But she she goes to the vent, right, opens it up and you see the shot from inside of the, the air conditioning vent or whatever. And she she's looking in there and saying, I'm Shirley Chisholm and I'm candidate for the president of the United States. You know, it's just such a great moment that I just I just felt was kind of triumphant and fun.
1: Yeah, and and we haven't uh, we haven't shouted out this actor yet, but uh, Uzo Aduba, um, who mm-hmm. uh, listeners might know as uh, Suzanne from Orange Is the New Black, plays Chisholm and is really, I think, revelatory in the humanity and and gravitas uh, she mm-hmm. she brings to the character.
2: Yeah, and that great scene in the garage where where he, she gets confronted by. I can't remember the character's name, but he's like, people are thinking that you're just too much for women and not enough for black people. And she's like, is this black enough for you? And she pulls out of her, you know, handbag, this horribly racist note uh, to her as a, you know, a congressperson right in the United States. Uh, Die N word. Right. And she's like, does this make me black? Am I black enough for you? You know, it's just so fascinating to think about the politics of that time, uh, racially and with the women's movement.
1: Yeah, I, that was a, a really wonderful moment. Um, I thought, I mean, a, a terrible moment, but a, a really wonderful moment. Right. I think it's it's easy to forget. There's a reason that um, that Kimberly Crenshaw, who famously coins the term intersectionality, Um, There's a reason that Crenshaw is a legal scholar, like the the idea that um, this these unentangled, uh, unentangleable, excuse me, uh, issues of gender and race that make it um, make kind of the, the stress of the politicized personhood more traumatic and difficult for black women is wrapped up in these legal issues that I think uh, Chisholm really knows and and feels and the portrayal of her uh, in this show gets to in really interesting ways.
2: It really does. And it made me super interested in her as a person because I just knew so little, as I mentioned, and I'd like to know more about her. She seemed like an incredibly intelligent person and just brave um, and kind of a no BSer, which I just love. I would just like to know more about her.
1: Yeah, that was my takeaway from a lot of this show, too, is that I I spent so much time um, researching primary documents and reading newspapers and trying to figure out um, more about the people that I had heard about, but also the people I hadn't heard about uh, before watching this show, which leads me to uh, the episode I'd like to discuss, episode six, uh, titled Jill for Jill Ruckel's house. Um, I picked this first because she was the only major figure covered in the show that I'd never heard of before I saw it. Um, I knew everyone else from the pro ERA uh, side of things, and I, I knew about Schlafly herself. Um, and also because of the B plot of the episode, which covers Phyllis's partnership uh, with the evangelical author Lottie Beth Hobbs. Uh, and this politicization of evangelical Christianity um, as a run-up to the Reagan years and the moral majority and and those sorts of things. Uh, So Jill Ruckelshaus was uh, the pretty much only prominent pro-ERA Republican. She is on women's commissions for uh, Ford and Nixon, and uh, her husband... uh, who was known uh, in political circles as Ruck Ruckles House um, was also involved in Washington, D.C. politics. They have uh, a blended family. He is, uh, she is his second wife, and they have uh, two children. He has two children from a previous marriage that she um, helps raise, and then they have children together. So, I found her incredibly interesting as a um, piece of this show because she is so unlike the other uh, pro-ERA women and has actually a lot of things on paper in common with the portrayal of Schlafly, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And generally, I just thought it was not surprising but interesting that the only prominent figure I had never heard of before Um, on this show was the only conservative uh, feminist on the show. Did the two of you know who Jill's Jill Ruckelshaus was before watching this?
2: I did not. And and to my mind, that was really such an interesting episode. And I saw immediately why you chose it, because it also is here. uh, Most people don't realize that there were Republican women who were in favor of the ERA. And the missteps represented in this episode led us to this kind of black and white stuff that I was talking about earlier that is just so deadly and just so dangerous. Like you have to be to be a Christian. You're this to if you're not uh, if you're not a Republican, then you're not really a Christian. Right. If you're not in favor of of the ERA amendment, then you're not really a liberal and you're not with us. You're against us. That whole thing. She represented an in-between position on that. Right. So, so important uh what happened there
0: yes i had also not heard of her but she was not the only one i had not heard of so you can't put too much weight on that um but yeah i i mean i did i did think that i appreciated them putting putting that in because i think it i could i could envision a universe where she was not featured in an episode at all and so i did appreciate um bring, bringing up that that nuance that i think is so often lacking in these conversations as christina has said in, in our conversations today um And it it fit with the fact that that this, you know, the amendment passed by a supermajority in in Congress and and was not anticipated to get any pushback in the ratification process. So it makes sense that there would be people on both sides of the aisle who supported it because there had to be people on both sides of the aisle supporting it for it to have gotten as far as it did. So I appreciated getting to spend a little bit more time with what that would look like for for one of the proponents um, who was a Republican. Yes. And
1: um, and she Gets into this um, later in the episode, she sort of talks about the difficult personal politics involved of being uh, a Republican appointed to head a commission by a Democratic president and how she kind of has to to thread that needle in in really difficult ways.
2: Yeah, and and then the, the sort of failure to really, I don't know, get that side represented in a way. We're still feeling the ramifications of that, you know, the the political maneuvering that created moral majority. You know, it just struck me in that episode more than any other point in the program, what could yes. have been versus what was.
1: Definitely. And uh, I think since we have mentioned the moral majority, um, it is probably a good time to talk about the B plot of the episode, uh, which is Phyllis makes. Uh, a a kind of irrevocable political turn when she asks Lottie Beth Hobbs, who is an evangelical um, women's author that I grew up uh, seeing her books in my church's library. She wrote the kind of books that, um, that, frankly, we've spent many episodes uh, of this podcast questioning the validity of um, a lot of biblical interpretations and devotions that have things like fans and flowers on the cover. Um, a, a lot of uh, what I've seen other uh, news outlets refer to as uh, lady font or, uh, or uh, more recently, lady the live, the, the live, laugh, love font um, on the cover. <laughs> a, a lot of like ter- terrible uh, flowery sans serif Uh, situations (laughs) happening uh, on her books. Um, Though I will say, while I find a lot of them infuriating, um, specifically the one I I kind of got shoved at me when I was a kid um, is a a book called Daughters of Eve, uh, Strength for Today from Women of Yesterday, which is this series of essays slash devotionals um, written in the voices of of biblical and historical women, and it's really trickly and uh, sort of making uh, making women of the past trumpet uh, very mid-20th century evangelical views, um, kind of oh, Eric Metaxas wow.
2: style um, is, is, oh, is wow, what she's wow. Saying. Oh, wow. Say no more. it's not <laughs> following you. Right.
1: Um, so, anyway, she's a she was a a towering uh, figure of kind of the the biblical womanhood uh, movement before it was really codified. And Phyllis enters into a partnership with her in this episode. Um, but the the meeting between them at Hobbs's house is something that I the first time I watched the episode, I went back. And watched, uh, rewound and watched that scene three or four times. And I just, it's so, it's so infuriating. Every it second is. of it. Every it, second of it is absolutely infuriating. He's so infuriating from every angle. Um, every angle. As someone who was wow. raised Southern Baptist, evangelical, and is now um, a practicing Roman Catholic, uh, Hobbes, evangelical, schlafly, Catholic. Um, I hated both of them from the word go in that conversation. Yeah. Like team, team, no one, and and I have a foot in both uh, camps here. Uh, just the the way that they stereotype each other. Um, oh, I have to read the quote. Where is it? Uh, so they they go to uh, Phyllis and and high ranking Eagle forum women go to Hobbs's house. And um, the way that the camera looks at this woman's home, um, which is
2: oh is, Victoria is go. basically
1: Great. just southern drag. like it's uh, horrible floral upholstered couches, um, more taxidermy than I have ever seen in any one person's house. <laughs> um, and you know, I'm from the South. Taxidermy is fine. Hunting is fine. I respect people who do it. I, but this this show does not um, respect those things. It is it is making fun of her Clearly. and and her um It's they, they're completely condescending to her. She is also completely condescending to Phyllis because Phyllis is not um, evangelical Protestant. She makes several. Uh, She implies several times that uh, Catholics don't really know the Bible, um, which some of them do and some of them don't, just like some Protestants do and some
2: Protestants don't. Exactly. I mean, can you imagine that conversation looking like that at all in real life? I can't. No, like it's it's ridiculous. Um, She. They disrespect her
1: because she has self-published her books. Um, She says she talks about uh, the chapter on Mary in uh, in Daughters of Eve and says, I typed this out because it made me so angry. Uh, You might want to look at the chapter on Mary. It shows some of the papal inconsistencies involving the virgin birth, um, which like don't say that the Pope is wrong about Catholic theology. The Pope is the Pope. Like that's kind of the whole, I don't know. And if, if you're not Catholic, that's not something that you can understand. Like the Pope gets to say what Catholic theology is to a certain point, because that's why he's the Pope. Uh, Uh That was, that was obnoxious to me. And uh, she also implies that Catholics aren't pro-life enough, which like slow down. Slow down, please.
2: I don't know. It was totally enraging, that whole scene. Alexis, did you get charged by it as well? Because I did. Yeah.
0: I I mean, I, I thought it was interesting because after having so many characters that had at least some degree of nuance and subtlety, and some competing motivations and all of that. I felt like I was just smack dab in front of someone who ought to be stroking a cat and twirling a mustache. Um, I, I thought I thought that the that that yeah that that Lottie's character was just so uh, just un uncomplicated, just bad, um, and just just evil i mean really really uh, the, the camera angles and the way that her expressions were like we are meant to think that she is just bad even in ways that we yeah. we aren't even asked to, uh, to think that of phyllis because phyllis at least we've seen her be a victim we've seen her struggle we've seen her be in denial about the ways that she has been the victim of discrimination and we don't get any of that with lottie she's just a bad person like she's just unpleasant and and wicked and i think and also it, honestly, an idiot
1: too yeah like she's she's yeah. evil and a moron
0: yes and i think i mean yeah. honestly it, it it echoes some of some of the concerns that the eagle forum uh supporters have in the series and on some of the, the concerns i think they still have today which is this is what the left thinks of people who have religious convictions um, this is and exactly so,
2: right
0: so that exactly. that is you know I I don't have any taxidermy in my home, but I know who I'm meant to be in this in this yep. series, um, and and I'm I'm probably meant to be Lottie Beth, and and even Lottie Beth with her, I'm not even sure we're supposed to to think, to believe how much she is even personally pro life. There's a, there's an, an an element in the way that she talks about it where she's like, if you really want to get my people stirred up, this is what you use. That does not. Oh yeah, sound, you have to
2: have um, as well. Yeah. Like the it, left has to depict this as total hypocrisy. Yeah.
1: yeah my, uh, and she, she says my ladies are most fired up about abortions and homosexuals in our schools, and so she's like she's seeing the political power uh, mm-hmm. potential here, and that is that is ultimately the agreement, the the alliance, and it it is an alliance. I'm not calling it a friendship on purpose because right. the show does not think that these women respect or like each other in any way, shape, or form. Um they politically ally themselves with each other in order to pull their mailing lists and get power the end. Um and it, it happens in such a ridiculous, like not uh not human, very mustache twirly way um near the end of the episode. Uh, Phyllis Joins Lottie in her deer stand, um, and it's, it's clear that like Phyllis doesn't want to be in a deer stand and is uncomfortable, and, and trying to keep herself above it, um, says that they need to attract power in order to achieve a more moral government. And she um, really skillfully shoots a deer and says... Uh, would you rather be ruled by a wise Turk or a foolish Christian? Um, and then they sort of shake hands and agree to join forces. Uh, Phyllis offers Lottie a seat on the Eagle Forum board and Lottie says, oh, no, no, you'll make me vice president. Um, rather shrewdly, I thought, um, And then they they agree to that. So it's it's portrayed 100 percent as a means to an end and not really um, as them kind of really believing in in anything they say.
2: Yep. Yep. Just a crass power play. Right. Um, And the fact that everything on the right is depicted as only a crass power play, and the, and yet the left is allowed to have their passions and their, you know, is really just frustrating to no end.
0: Right. So Gloria, Gloria Steinem believes what she believes in good faith, like whatever else you yes. think about what she believes or Bella Abzug or any of them, Betty Friedan, like Correct. they believe what they believe in good faith. And good faith. I think the only person that we get to see believe in good faith is the the made up character um, of, of Alice McRae, played by Sarah Paulson. And the only reason she's allowed to be a believer in good faith is so she can have a conversion to the truth at the end um, by going out and Mm -hmm. becoming employed and and realizing that that Phyllis is just uh, deceitful and power hungry and and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. Um, But we don't get to see anyone on the on the, the Eagle Forum side acting in good faith. Fred doesn't act in good faith. Rosemary Thompson doesn't act in good faith. None of these people are given the benefit of of believing what they say in a genuine way and acting accordingly. And
1: it's so frustrating because Alice, who who is a very compelling um, composite character, despite or because her fictional state, um, Alice starts off in her kind of political conversion process um, at a place where it seems like she might think that christian feminism is the answer she she talks about uh, her faith leading her to get uh, a friend of theirs out of an abusive marriage she essentially says jesus does not want husbands to abuse their wives um, when when Phyllis is saying, you know, we don't want to meddle in their personal affairs, um, etc. But then um, Alice sort of she goes through this experience in uh, Houston at uh, at the convention where she takes drugs, hallucinates and takes the Eucharist from a radical nun. And I was Like screaming, throwing things, throwing my pen and paper at the television, (laughs) just like I was so upset that the only way that they can justify um, this woman's political awakening is if she does something that her faith sees as unorthodox in the name of politics, because nuns are not priests. They cannot um, they cannot administer the the host that's that's not a a valid um presentation of the body of christ in the catholic church and so i just i was so upset because that show tries to let other people be complex in a way that uh it can't let religious women be complex even religious women that turn out to be progressively religious women just so frustrating
0: Well, And it wasn't necessary. Like, I think you had enough in that episode. Exactly. Maybe not enough to fill the episode. But but just the fact that she sees other women being kind to her. So she she has an encounter with another woman in the bar who's very sympathetic and very kind and very supportive. And then she finds out that she's a member of now. um, And then she ends up having to share a hotel room. Um, with um, proponents of the ERA and Gloria Steinem comes by and she she sees how Gloria Steinem is working in this collaborative way with these other women. They're all very kind to her. And then she that would be enough for her to have her big revelation of, hey, who who exactly am I defending myself against? Because maybe these people aren't actually attacking me. Between that and then her friend Pamela's situation with her abusive marriage, I think you have plenty there for her to say, I think I'm seeing more of of the compassion of Christ from, you know, from the people who are supporting the ERA than I am from from the people who are against the ERA, especially since she's also the only character we see consistently speaking up against uh, the racism that is articulated by some um, uh, affiliated with the Eagle Forum, uh, which whatever the, the, the historical basis for that may or may not be. Like, she's the consistent voice that says, no, all people matter. We do not want this. We do not hate anyone. We love people. Um, so she already was in a position teed up really nicely to do that without having to have um, a drug trip and and a, and, yeah, the Eucharist from a radical nun.
1: Yes, um, I'm, I'm so glad that the two of you were as perplexed and frustrated by that as I was, because I thought, oh, like when she started getting into Christian feminism, I was like, oh, yes, like this is this is amazing. Let's let's do this and explore this complexity. And then they just yeah. throw it they, all away.
2: Yeah through it all away. okay
1: um i think we have have run fairly long um so i am going to transition us to our final segment and uh let's talk about what we think our listeners should read watch or listen to uh alexis
0: start us off um, well, because I'm bad at following instructions. I have two recommendations. Um, one is an article that we posted on our Facebook page uh, a while ago called My Experience as a Working Mother at Notre Dame Was Much Different from Amy Coney Barrett's. It's a slate piece. Um, and I just thought about that because the issue of child care came up a lot throughout the series. Um, the the pro ERA the pro-ERA crowd seemed to have a lot of childcare options really making sure that, that women could participate. And the way that the Eagle Forum folks were portrayed, it was if you have a baby, that's your problem. You make arrangements. No, uh, no help will be given. Um, and I think at one point Phyllis says um, they have cribs at the hotel. She could bring her baby if she wants, but there's no what, what, what do we need to do to help? And uh, I thought that the, the piece talking about Amy Coney Barrett's success at um, at Notre Dame and the 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 way that the institution responded to and supported her that maybe wasn't the way they supported all working mothers Uh, It was just a really interesting piece. Um, And then I recently finished a book called Hill Women, Finding Family and a Way Forward in the Appalachian Mountains um, by uh, Cassie Chambers um, that, while not as directly related, I think touches on some of the similar themes um, of what what it can look like to transition um, from a rural environment um, into a more progressive environment, issues of childcare, issues of opportunity, um, and tracks some of the same time period uh, as well. So that was an interesting read and a helpful read, I thought, for thinking about um, some of the challenges that women face um, in in more rural parts of the country. Thanks
1: uh, for those
0: recommendations,
1: Alexis. I really loved that slate piece um, that you mentioned, and uh, I I think it's a really good thing to recommend in terms of all of these personal and political uh, intersections that we've been talking about. So thanks for that. Christina, what do you have for us?
2: Well, you know, this may sound like a cop-out, but the, I think that, uh, and we've talked about this book, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, but it's one of those examples where a lot of people know the book, but that haven't actually read it. Reading it is a revelation. Um, The book is when I first read it maybe about 10 years ago for the first time, I was surprised at how deep of a sociological study it really is and how the examples in there are just super compelling. And so I think it's one of those books that you should take off of your I know about it but haven't really read it list and actually read it.
1: All right. It's a, it's a classic for a reason. Uh, that's that's great. Thanks. Uh, so my recommendation is going to be a little uh, less serious than the ones that Christina and Alexis recommended. But um, the conversation that we've been having tonight and the issues that Mrs. America brings up, particularly the issue of... Um, generational divide within feminist expression and uh, the idea of female anger and and how it's not taken seriously in society. Um, these are things that pop up in Mrs. America and things that my recommendations uh, make me think of, reasons that they're on my mind. So I'm gonna recommend uh, a recent album, that you may have heard of if you are of a certain age, um, Olivia Rodrigo's Sour. Olivia Rodrigo is um, a young singer who is probably most famous for being on the Disney show High School Musical, The Musical, The Series. Uh, this is her first uh, solo album. I am obsessed with it, and it's it's so wonderful because it's um, it's so... So much about anger and and negative teen girl emotion in a way that celebrates those things. Um, And I also want to recommend uh, an article from Glamour about the album uh, entitled For Geriatric Millennials Who Love Olivia Rodrigo, It's Brutal Out Here. Um, It's Brutal Out Here is a, a phrase from the first song on the album. Uh, And geriatric millennials is a term for older millennials, uh, women my age, uh, who are seeing sort of seeing themselves pitched in this battle with uh, younger Gen Z women about what's appropriate as a woman and what's not. Um, I'm pretty sure it's all a bunch of nonsense and that we should just, you know, not let society tell us that we should hate each other. We should instead. Uh, figure out what's good about people in younger and older generations and celebrate those things instead of letting them divide us. Uh, So that's my recommendation. Thank you. Uh, Read, read that article uh, though. Please refrain uh, from calling your friendly neighborhood, older millennials geriatric. It's not very nice. (laughs) Uh, That's, that's all I have. Um, So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, We want to hear from you if you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you want to say hello, you can do so at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at chradionetwork. And you can check out show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. For Alexis Neal and Christina Bieber Lake, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in about a month when we will have a second and final exploration of the long running CW TV show Supernatural. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.